Welcome back to another episode of Accounting for Us, a podcast brought to you by the Metropolitan D.C. chapter of the National Association of Black Accountants. My name is Ozeamina Ozo Namadam, and I am the first vice president of the chapter. We're so excited to have you listening in and hope you enjoy the podcast. On this episode, I have a sit-down conversation with Kimberly Ellison Taylor, former chair of the Association of International Certified Public Accountants, thought leader and executive director at Oracle, mentor to many, and just all-around superhero. We hope you enjoy this episode. Like, comment, subscribe, share with your friends, colleagues, allies, and continue to push the diversity and inclusion conversation forward. Enjoy. Greetings, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Accounting for Us, the NABA Metro DC podcast. Uh, this episode, we actually have an all-star, world-famous <laughs> um, executive from Oracle. Uh, you all may recognize her name. Um, her name is Kimberly Ellison Taylor. Um, she has uh, however many accolades that you can describe, but I think um, her formal title is Executive Director of Finance Thought Leadership Enterprise Risk Planning, Enterprise Risk Management uh, for Product Marketing. Um, she has a diverse background in finance and technology, and she served as the 104th chair of the AISCPA. She was the youngest person, uh, the fifth woman, and the first person of color to serve as the chair of the AISCPA. So just many, many, many kudos to you. Thank you. I feel honored and privileged to have you, and I hope our members enjoy this. I know that they will. So thank you so much. The honor is all mine. I am so glad we had an opportunity to get this podcast uh, finally on our calendars, and I am I am always excited to help the DC chapter. I am in the Baltimore chapter, so don't try to steal me away. But if I was going to be stolen, DC would be right there, the next top of the list. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, uh, we all have like you know we have chapter beef sometimes, but uh, we're all one NABA family. We <laughs> That's all right. We are That's all right. Um, so as we. As, as speaking of NABA family, can you just tell me a little bit more about your NABA story? How did you become affiliated? Can you tell me more about you? Talk, tell us about yourself. Kimberly, so, yeah, Absolutely. So I am from Baltimore, the Sandtown, Winchester community of Baltimore. I grew up in the inner city and I wanted to be a CPA since I was in the third grade. And I always ask every chance I get for everyone to have a homework assignment when they're talking with me. And that is be a catalyst and an ambassador of change. We have to create, I think, many cases of more role models, more people who are highlighted for their capabilities and for all of the things that they're doing on behalf of our community. And whenever I think who is doing a lot for our community, NABA and our NABA members and family members all across the United States and in some cases around the world are right up there in my mind because NABA is showcasing excellence at its finest levels. 
And so my story with NABA is that I was a member of the Maryland Association of CPAs, but realized that there was a part of our membership that probably needed a little more attention from me. And as a member of MACPA, I became affiliated and a member of the Baltimore chapter. And how excited was I to see the amazing role models who are out there every day working in their respective responsibilities across every facet of the profession, public accounting, business and industry, government, education, not-for-profit and consulting. And to know that there are people who look like me, to know that there are people who understand my struggle, to know that there are people that I don't have to say a word, but if I say what had happened was, they know <laughs> what I'm talking about. They get my jokes, we get each other's jokes. Or if I say something like, we're gonna learn today, and then everybody in the room starts laughing, you can't replace that, that kind of experience and understanding of where we've been and hopefully where we're going. And so I am so proud of NABA family, the NABA family, and so proud of the work that we are doing and will continue to do to promote excellence at every level and also to provide more opportunities for inspiration, which I believe leads to aspiration. Oh my goodness. So we're going to start off really strong coming out the gate with all of the gems. Thank you so much. Uh, um, first, um, just thank you for being a catalyst for change. So I know I, I have a lot of gratitude. So I'm going to, uh, I know that you understand that, uh, that that is happening. So I'm toning down the gratitude. Uh, throughout, but I will remain in Oh, I live, oh, for sure. Listen, I, I think it's important too, and that's how I grew up. Sounds like that's how you grew up. Mm -hmm. We do have to have an attitude of gratitude. And for me, every day, I start out with my prayer to say, God, let me be the vehicle on the ground to Amen. put forth the message and the testimony of how amazing you are. And so I, I, I lead with gratitude. When I meet people who have experiences that I don't have and who have paved the way, who are older than me, I want to give them recognition. And, you know, we have so many people in the NABA family that we could do that all day with, starting with the NABA founders who exactly. were standing there and we're standing on their shoulders. We have to have added, you know, attitudes of gratitude. There's just no other way to describe it. Absolutely. And that is, I mean, in this time right now, I mean, absolutely how we're managing. That's how I'm managing. Um, I recognize that representation matters. And I know that, you know, I want to keep contributing on a day to day basis. I see you doing so much. And I think about how stressed out I end up being sometimes. And I'm just like, wow, Kimberly Ellison Taylor is a superhero. I just want to just just thank you. So that was my attitude of gratitude. Um, last night, I was able to attend. Uh, so tying back to NABA, last night, I was able to attend a Men of NABA webinar um, where the National Urban League president and CEO spoke and he mentioned uh, a quote or he repeated a quote that he had heard. It was um, sometimes being the first is not actually an accomplishment, it's actually an assignment. Um, and that really resonated with me because I think about you being the first woman of color, the first black person, the first like the 
the youngest person uh, and it says, yeah, and the first person of color. So all of the titles and those were so many assignments. Can you just tell me um, a little bit about how you navigate like just the accomplishment? Are you balanced between accomplishment, filling the basking in the accomplishment, but also recognizing your assignment? I, I love that quote. And I think he's right. And I would say for all of us who have been or are the first in anything, my charge is not to be the first and only. I need to find other people who can stand on my shoulders and who I can help mentor, coach, and sponsor along on this journey. And I hope I don't cry when I say this, but if I have not found a pipeline, if I can't help someone else be even considered to be the future chairman of AICPA or the Maryland Association of CPAs, I have failed because Mm -hmm. my charge is not to be here and say, thank you, God, for my blessings. My charge is to understand to whom much is given, much is required. And so every day, each one of us wakes up on this side we have a responsibility to go out and pay it forward and to lift as we climb. We, we do not get the benefit of saying we're tired. You don't get the benefit of saying, oh, I just want to go to bed. No, you've got to keep going. You've got to get up. You've got to get moving, get organized. Because but for the grace of God, mm. who knows where we would be. And I know where I'd be because I see it every day in Baltimore. So I, I have a pretty good idea of what I could have been doing. So I understand my assignment and I understand my responsibility. Absolutely. You know, I worked in education for, uh, for some time uh, <laughs> and I absolutely serve students in, in Washington, D.C. So I 100% understand and empathize. Like, hey, that I, on a day-to-day basis, I recognize that much is required of me. Naming that there's a burden for our people. I saw that you wrote an article earlier this summer on uh, systemic racism and unconscious bias. Um, you know, that was the first time anyone had ever used the word, uh, corporations started using the word systemic racism explicitly. So it felt pretty bold and just very, very, very um, progressive for the profession and for the AICPA to give you allow like to provide this platform to really advocate. So could you tell me a little bit about the impetus and then like what your specific findings were? Oh, there's so much to unpack. Oh, so much. So here it is. The reality is I grew up like most of the NABA family where you learn some key things. One, it is what it is. Two, Education levels the playing field. Three, we've got to work twice as hard to get half the credit. And so you you automatically know that we're going to have to, or it feels like you have to overcompensate because you know that people are going to perceive you, not all, I don't want to say it's everyone, but you know that there could be a negative perception of you as a Black person and also as a minority. And I will tell you that I also heard we have two, I have two strikes, being female and being Black. Mm. Who wants to tell their kid that? But I think my parents did me an amazing service 
by preparing me for the world. They gave me a Teflon and a toughness because when and if things happen, I was not surprised. It was only but what I expected because they had already told me to prepare me. And so when I think about the two Americas that we've been living in, maybe to some degree, we did our colleagues a disservice because we were so much, and I say we, but it could be just me, trying to assimilate that they did not fully understand that when the Band-Aid was ripped off with George Floyd's senseless murder, that it was only what had been there the entire time the disparities in healthcare, the food deserts that are in the inner city where we don't have grocery stores, but you can find a liquor store probably on every other church and you can find somewhere to get your wig weave and hair done on the other corner. But in some cases, we were just not being as forthcoming because those of us who were on this career success journey felt like maybe we could change minds. And I know I did. I felt like one person at a time, they would meet me. They would understand that we work hard. Don't don't characterize or stereotype all Black people as doing this. Don't stereotype all Black people from Baltimore as doing this. And I thought that by meeting me and understanding my family values are similar to yours. We, we wanted to work hard. My dad worked at Bethlehem Steel. He took two buses to get to work. He got there an hour early. He was like on time is early. I mean, early is on time and on time is late. He really just felt like I'm gonna distill those principles and give them to my kids. And so everywhere I went, I tried to share those stories so that people would know my family didn't have to live in Baltimore. My family chose to live in Baltimore. Mm. And I think that is a, a key difference. And so I realized, however, that it wasn't scaling, that people were separating me from the Black community. And instead of saying, wow, if I met Kimberly, must be another 10 Kimberleys. Instead, I think they were thinking Kimberly is different. When I'm not different, there are 10, 15, 20 Kimberleys that are moving at a faster pace, that are doing amazing things that are just unknown in our community and around the world. And so when I realized that, I had to get my courage together because yeah. I've never said racism in a professional work environment. But the stories that I've been hearing from NABA family members were so egregious that in my mind as a CPA, I'm, I'm data oriented. So I want to reach for the data. I want to say, Oh, so what time did you get to work? I'm looking for any other reason but the reason that it could be. Because in my mind, I'm just having a hard time understanding why would, if someone was Black, affect whether or not they're doing their financial reporting role? Or why would, if they're gay, that would impact whether or not they're doing taxes? Or why if they have a you know, any other diverse challenge or they're young or they're older or they're different religions or ethnicities, they wear a turban at work. Why would that impact what they do every day to help um, fill out the 990s? I, I just scratch my head. So when people would come to me and I would say, well, let me hear the story. Tell me what had happened was. And, and I'd hear it. And then I would say, okay, now that pulls out the other thing my family always told me. There are rules for us, and then there are rules for everybody else. 
And so then I started hearing these dual set of rules, these, these things that would happen on engagement assignments, the things that would happen on even office allocation, the things that would happen on initiatives and promotions and, and even performance appraisal reviews. So we're not getting the challenging assignments early in, that has a consequence on the back end. Right. And so, so yes, I had to get my courage together. And I'm, and I'm so pleasantly happy to see that many of us have, the professionals who have already been on deck, we know that the baton was given to us from our boomer colleagues and the traditionalists. We can't fail them. We have to pick up the mantle and set the stage for the next generation. And that means being courageous and being candid, being appropriate also, but telling the story in a way that will win the hearts and minds of our colleagues to basically say, you've been working with me for 20 years. I've never talked about racism before. I've never led with being a female. If I am telling you as my dear colleague that I know you like me, I know you love me, I know you care about me, be my ally. Talk, talk to your family about what's going on. Try to get them to understand that we aren't here um, asking for something that we aren't entitled to because as a human being, aren't we entitled to just basic civil decency? And, and I would tell the stories of my sons and my husband and my worry. And I'd explain, and I'm increasingly, and I'm happy to do it, to talk about what privilege is and to talk about some of the very, I would say, dangerous topics that people feel are in the DEI space. But sometimes, you know, when you're called, <laughs> you don't hear it right away. And I don't think I heard it when I was first called to talk more about DEI. I tried to ignore it. And then you get the two-finger tap, and it's like, okay, it's you. If not you, then who? If not now, then when? If there's ever any chance, any time ever in our history that we are going to see a measurable intentional impact, we have to come together now, pack our fear away, pack away that it's about us, because it's not, it's not about me. It's about bringing us all together. So my messages are always about inclusion. It's about our Caucasian colleagues. And it's also about our Hispanic colleagues, our Asian ones, certainly all of us in the Black and African-American community coming together in a way that supports excellence. And so to that degree, it wouldn't matter what your orientation was or your physical ability. We need to help you become the best version of yourselves. And I think we're all charged to come together in a way that messages together and not divides us because words have consequences. And I think we have to pay attention to that. Absolutely. I just feel, um, one, I just feel so empowered to just like want to go affect change. So thank you for, for that. I, I think specifically, um, I think where I've been, uh, and like you said, you have two strikes against you. You're, Black and a woman. Um, and earlier we had a conversation. You mentioned, like, you asked me, "Hey, well, which do you think our colleagues would would acknowledge first about me as whether I identify as black and gay?" So, if my colleagues, how would they interact with me any differently, knowing that 
I fortunately have the privilege of being able to, you know, disclose whether or not I want to be out at work. You don't have the privilege of being, uh, of disclosing your, uh, how you express your gender or disclosing your race. It's just like very visible. So I acknowledge that as a privilege between the two of us. I also um, just think that this is, it speaks to a lesson in empathy. Privilege ties directly with empathy. So as we transition over, I did want to ask you a question specifically about uh, empathy and was there any specific instance or moment that actually triggered your lesson in empathy? I feel like sometimes we we end up focused on um, what oppresses us, but we don't really understand that we actually have a lot of privilege sometimes. And so whenever we learn to name privilege, that's when we understand empathy. So can you tell me about that moment for you? I think there are lots of moments where I've understood that what someone else is going through is different than me. And I can just go through a number of them. So let's go through, um, and sometimes it's very personal. And and it's interesting because I always talk about the heart and the mind. And I think in today's environment, I've tried the path of talking about it from a numbers perspective and the triple bottom line and why it's so important for diversity and inclusion and how it's going to help from a competitive awareness and, and just being ahead of what the market is asking for. And now I think the head, the the heart part is what we need to address. And when I say that in an article, I was thinking about when something personally happens to you and it becomes meaningful to you, you have an aha moment. So I had a colleague who was, um, and who is, I should say, um, Asian. And so in more particular, they are Vietnamese and they are Vietnamese American third generation. And so, and being their friend, I think this was probably 15 years ago, just realizing that people are looking at them as if they don't belong here. Like they're, oh, your English is so great. And so the first time you actually get to witness that, you are like, are you kidding me? You, your family's been here for three generations. Or when someone says, where are you from? You mean Chicago? Right. Yeah, I'm from Chicago. So it is it is daunting. I think the other piece of that is also understanding that from my friends who I love dearly, I've had some who didn't feel comfortable even telling me that their sexual preference was something other than heterosexual. And I am horrified that someone would be afraid of what I would think about who they love and who makes them feel safe and makes them want to get up every day the same way that I feel about my husband. And so when you finally realize that people that you've been around day in and day out, they've been listening to the baby shower stories, they've been going to the weddings by themselves because they didn't feel like they could bring their significant other, you realize that they have been hiding and shielding a part of themselves. And so while you may say, oh, I love so-and-so and and I like so-and-so, if they did not tell you that they were gay, then they were not being their authentic true self with you. And you probably didn't know them as well as you thought you did. And I had a coworker who maybe this was about 10 years ago that I sat in a restaurant and cried my eyes out with him. 
And that is because he said, listen, I tried not to be gay. And I was like, what? I'm going to cry thinking about it. He said, my family, my mom and my dad, we come from a very religious family and I didn't want to be gay. But, and I tried, but I just wasn't happy. I was miserable. I was making, you know, the, the person I was dating miserable. And I'm sitting there crying my eyes out thinking the misery that I hear who in their right mind would subject anyone that they love to that instead of saying, just be happy with who you are because you, every, you're, we're God's creatures. So that definitely gave me a more upfront and up close view of understanding that and then understanding for the Hispanic community that I, I don't even know if I could even say this, this is the next part of how we have colleagues who, if they look Hispanic or not, ICE could kick in their door without a warrant, probably in some cases. You mean to tell me that you're walking down the street and you might really need to carry a passport? And so I don't know if people understand the ramifications and yes, and, and about immigration. And there are people who have been here their entire lives. I have met students who are in flux and uncertainty about what's going to happen to them because they are dreamers and will they get deported back home? And so that's tough. And then when you think about people who have um, challenges with abilities, I have seen so many YouTube videos that make me cry. I want to cry every time I see it. And there's one, and everyone else has probably seen it, of a little boy who finally is walking because he's got assistive um, tools and crutches. And he's like, look, Maggie, I'm walking. I'm walking, Maggie. And it makes you want to cry because he's probably three years old and he's so excited. And it just makes you say, if it was your kid, wouldn't you want your child to have the best opportunity and chance in life? And so, and then even from a female perspective, I've grown up with that my entire life. The, the stereotypes, the Im images, the issues that we face. When you think about in 1898, the first Caucasian female to pass the CPA exam was Christine Ross. It took her 18 months to actually get licensed. We just passed the 100th year of the ratification of the right to vote as a female. It was in 1943 when Mary T. Washington Wiley passed the CPA exam and she was a black female and no one was giving her a chance because of probably her gender. We don't talk about that as much because we talk more about her race. Women have our challenges with stereotypes of whether or not we're serious about working, stereotypes on whether or not we're going to be able to put in the effort and time. Uh, some cases we don't smoke cigars, some cases we do, but we're missing out on that chumminess that happens and we want to be right there and getting in our um, good word and promotion speeches that we're doing. We're not there in some cases. And then because in our community more specifically, not all cases. We are the primary care providers. And so what I've always encouraged us, because I got an all pair, I had no idea. I didn't even know, as crazy as this is going to sound, that Black people got an all pair. Like I was like the only person that I knew that had an all pair. 
And one of my Caucasian colleagues said to me, she said, Kimberly, let me help you because my family would tell me that they were going to leave. I lived in at the time in Bowie, but they would tell me they were going to leave Baltimore and they would be there in time to help with the baby when they were, when he was young. My family would be leaving at the time I needed to be where I was going and they would just be leaving. So I was like, okay, I can't do this. Note to self, I have got to get uh, affordable, consistent, reliable daycare and, and the all pair program helped me quite a bit because what I know is this, we cannot be in a position now, this is pre-COVID, so COVID is game change, but we can't be in a role where we want leadership if we're leaving like a clock at five o'clock. And truth be told, we already put our track sneakers on at 4.30. We already went to the restroom to get ready to go. Our purses are on our shoulders and we're just sitting at our desk all packed up ready for five o'clock because we got to get to daycare before it closes at six or 6.30 or it's $2 a minute after it. That's not going to be an environment or scenario where we can ask whatever the leader is to trust us that we can be the next leader up because of our family responsibilities. And so I say all that to say, I walk through life trying to understand the other person's perspective. And I have cried tears more times than I can tell you when I have heard the stories because I want to be empathetic or sympathetic and understand someone else's journey, not just mine. Yes, no, I, I am like astonished because like some of these things I've already, I, I've, I've considered, I consider myself a pretty woke individual, but it's always like, I, I appreciate being in a, I, I stay in a, a posture for learning and curiosity. So I just, um, thank you for sharing that. Um, I guess the next question is then, how do you equip allies with understanding empathy and like charging them with action? I know that the the article itself was a, a specific call to action, but like, um, how do you make it more tangible for the individual? I create a safe zone uh, because I know that people today are frustrated, especially in our community. They are frustrated because they feel like other people should know and they should look it up and they should read a book. But that's a part of the assignment. The assignment is in each one of us understanding that we are an, a catalyst and an ambassador for change. And that means answering the questions that you might get. And I don't care if you get it once or if you get it 15 times. We have a responsibility to help shape and help people on their journey if we're being the one, if we're the ones being asked the question. And so because I create that kind of safe zone, my colleagues have taken me up on it. And I appreciate that they have because I would much rather them call me up and say, Kimberly, what do you think about this? Than to put out a press release that says, we're sorry, but now let's talk about the destruction of property. Because I can't tell you how many um, moments where I was reading a statement and I was thinking to myself, who wrote this statement? Because I don't see the level of empathy that is necessary and needed. And I didn't see the acknowledgement of the pain and grief. Because what I see is the concern more about these buildings than I do human life being taken. And yes, I am absolutely upset if we have people as what we would say and in, in growing up in my family, acting a whole fool out there throwing bricks and buildings and ruining someone's 
you know, dreams because you're angry. Two wrongs don't make a right. And so I would never co-sign or condone violence or destruction of any property at all. But at the same time, I think we can not be at the funeral talking about how bad someone was. Can't we wait until the funeral and the repast is over before we start telling you about what we really think about them? And I don't think I saw enough of that understanding that it really could have been a two-part process, that you didn't really have to tell us all that you felt in the one letter. So they didn't know, though. And in some cases, they didn't know the microaggressions that have been happening or that were happening and things that they said. And I can believe that because I don't wake up every day thinking about what it feels like if I were left-handed. I take for granted that I live in a right-handed world. And so that's privilege. And so I understand and I provide grace to people to make mistakes. And so person by person, I have been invited to come and present and speak and, and help train, and I'm happy to do it. I think absolutely it is my responsibility and honor to be able to share my knowledge with someone about DEI. Absolutely. Um, I just, I always get choked up, so I apologize. Uh, what is, is the most important lesson that you've learned about resilience throughout your career? Um, and and I'm mentioning that because, you know, we were discussing being the first. And in order to be the first, you have to not see anyone and you have to persevere so much. So how did you learn about resilience and, and, and what advice would you give to early career professionals about that journey? So many places, so many ways. But I would say this is, this is it. We have to realize that when things happen, sometimes it's just not about us. It's about the lesson we're supposed to learn. It's about the next chapter. And I think through the various lessons learned and disappointments, I have become renewed and re-energized in my faith because I believe that what's for me is for me. No one can take something that's for me. And if it's supposed to be, then it will be. And I have peace. I have prayed for peace. I don't pray for any one particular thing. I pray for the peace of understanding that if I can do a good job, then I want the role. If I'm not going to be able to have a voice and a platform, and I'm not going to be able to really change minds and hearts, if that would have been the case as the chairman of AICPA, then I would have fully have said, this isn't my time. And it's okay. Not now. My time will come. And I don't know if we all realize that until we get older. I probably would have saved myself some sleepless nights, some tears, some heartache had I learned that early. I would also say part of resilience is understanding that all steps forward are not vertical steps forward. Sometimes it's be still. It's okay to be still. And sometimes it's okay to understand that while you're being still, you can be getting ready for the opportunity that's going to come. So that means going to classes, looking online, going to Coursera, getting some of these free webinars and opportunities, meeting people for virtual coffee chats. You're getting ready. That's part of the preparation process. And I think I learned about resilience in so many places when I got to UMBC and they didn't have an accounting program, which I had my heart set on and I had to change my mind and decide if I was going to stay there or go somewhere else. And I went, stayed at UMBC and majored in information systems. 
when I thought that I was going to graduate. We dream about graduating, but I was a co-op at NASA and they said, if you put in those graduation papers, we do not have a job for you. We have a job for you as a co-op and you can work year round as a co-op, but we do not have a full-time job for you. Now imagine I could see the finish line. I put off my graduation a year. Now, do you know how hurtful that is when you're anticipating something and you're so close and you just want to push forward and say, okay, I'll worry about it later. And I was like, no, I'm going to be more practical about this. I'm going to go and figure out what I need to do to get my MBA. So I stayed enrolled in school, went and got all the preliminary classes I needed to be to get an MBA from Loyola in Maryland. And by the time I graduated, they had a role for me. So I had an offer right out of school and I was already a year through what I would have needed to do to get an MBA. And I just think that planning served me in great stead because I took those classes as an undergrad instead of at the higher graduate rate. And then I would say, you know, another factor would have been when I failed a CPA exam. And I get it. So many times we're used to being superstars. And so you're used to being a superstar. You're used to succeeding and doing well. The first bump in the road, the first headache, the first heartache, we're ready to give up and change our whole plan. And I saw a meme that says, you know, change the plan, but not the goal. And I think that's what we need to do. The CPA exam is challenging. It is difficult. But I grew up basically saying, if anybody can do it, I can. And I'm not going to give anyone an excuse to minimize my credentials. I'm not going to give anyone an excuse to say she's not the person for the role. I'm going to go out and get as much education and experience as I can, because my family also said, no matter where you go, people can't take education from you. And I think that is important. And so with so many lessons like that, where you're hurt, and you're, you're devastated, and you're, you want to say, why me? And then you have to say to yourself, why not you? Why, why, why do you think you're entitled to having the only good stuff happening to you? It rains on the just and the unjust alike. All of us are subject to being disappointed. And so we just have to realize that. Absolutely. It's all about perspective. And uh, I thank you for like, you know, rooting us in the right perspective, right? Um, so many, so many nuggets of knowledge and just like, wow. So much wisdom. Um, during COVID-19, I feel like, I, I know you were mentioning, uh, we have this desire to like keep pressing forward and working. And, you know, there's oftentimes uh, someone, I, I don't know who, who coined this phrase, but, you know, the black fatigue. It's like you go to work and you have one set of duties, but on top of that, as a representation for your, your subgroup, your population, for your race, whatever demographic it is, you, you have this additional burden to bear. Um, so how do you disconnect and how do you make sure that you are finding time to recharge, especially in COVID-19 where uh, we are all pressed for time and it just seems like there's not enough? That is 100% true. And then I would also say for those of us who have elder care responsibilities. One of the things I've, I've tried to say to people is that you never know the challenges and heartache that people are going through behind the scenes. And so I became the chairman of AICPA in October of 2016. 
and my mom passed away in July of 2016. I went through that year in a daze and I went through the year crying on the inside. I'm still grieving. Four years later, I am still grieving. And I think people think, oh, you got the perfect life. Everything's great. But you don't know what people are really doing behind the scenes and the care that they are taking. When my mom was sick and she was in ICU so many times, more times than I could even care to think, I would leave from some meeting and fly and take my suitcase with me to the hospital. And I never talked about it. I never complained. Hopefully you never saw me and said, whoa, she's wearing that stress on her face, <laughs> you know, because my mom would say, never let them see you sweat. Suck it up. You know, you can do this. And don't you get out there and cry. And I'm like, are you kidding me, mom? You're at the time. I didn't know she was going to pass away. I was just thinking we couldn't figure out how to get her to Orlando to see me become the chairman. Thank God she did participate in the video. So she knew it was coming. I talked to her. She was so proud of me. And I knew that she wasn't going to be there. And the speech was about all of her influence. But I didn't think she really wasn't going to be there. Like she was in heaven, not going to be there. And she was telling me just then, don't, don't you cry. Don't get up there and embarrass me. And if something happens to me, don't you throw yourself across this coffin. I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I can't make it. I can't go on without you. And she was like, yes, you can and you will. And so I just think that people don't know that, but I want them to go back and look over my pictures and to say, wow, she was given honor to her mom because she was holding it together. And we never even knew how much distress or hurt she was going through every day or that she was going to the hospital putting on scrubs and stuff to go in to see her mom or taking conference calls from her mom's hospital bed that is just an experience that people don't know or and and I'm happy to have not told them because it wasn't for them to know I only just say that to say you never know what people are going through in their lives and we should be paying attention to that. And so all throughout that time and through the process, I have two teenage sons of college sweetheart. They were sounding boards for me, so critical on my journey of encouragement and supporting me and helping me try to run to Baltimore and check on my mom and my dad and then come back and, you know, get ready for the next trip. I couldn't have done it without them. There is no way. So my family definitely grounds me. My faith is the foundation, the center of everything that I do. And, and then, of course, I love to read. And so for people who may say, oh, my gosh, Kimberly, we know you're an extrovert. I am an extrovert. But they may also be surprised to know that I recharge through reading, which is a solitary activity. And so my preference would be to get lie on the sofa with some socks on. Don't ask me why. That's probably TMI. But I'm the person that has socks on. If it's 100 degrees outside, I always have to have on fuzzy socks. And so to lie on the couch and read a really good book, not about fast beat pronouncements and upcoming task forces, not about the Journal of Accountancy, not about what's happening globally. <laughs> read a really good juicy book and, and that's how I recharge and, and more recently I've started getting into some of these Netflix movies and so I kind of binge watch some of those 
but in general, those are still things that I do by myself and, and it's exciting. Thank you, one. I appreciate you so much for telling your story. That is the most sincere, raw form of Kimberly Ellison Taylor that I know that I've, I've ever never said it. To. This is live, exclusive on the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, it's just like, I mean, I too, I've lost a parent. I, I was not extremely, I, did, I didn't have a same relationship, but it definitely amounted an amount of grief that, you know, I. I can only under, like, there's no words. So I just want to say thank you for sharing that with me and feeling comfortable enough and safe enough to share that with me. I appreciate it. Um, I would not, uh, you cannot mention uh, reading and then me not follow up with what <laughs> book are you reading? Could you, <laughs> what's oh your turn? What's on your turn? my books for uh, pleasure or the books I have to read to stay current? Because I have in the middle of, five different books. I am mm. going over anti-racist. I'm reading Blind Spot, um, hidden, Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. I am reading Surrounded by Idiots. I have went back and looked at um, From Good to Great because some of the classics are so prophetic with some of the things they were saying, you know, with Clay Christensen and he's definitely the innovator's dilemma looking at Malcolm Gladwell. I was in uh, the bookstore, physical bookstore, and actually saw that you could get like all of his books and another one for a discount. I was like, I got these books on Kindle, but if I can get the physical book, that's even better. So I'm going through Blink again right now. And so I'm kind of, it would be drive someone else, you know, bananas, because I am reading across books, like a chapter of this one, a chapter of that one. I'm looking for quotes. I speak a lot as a keynote speaker. So you want to be current. You want to be fresh. You want to have the information that's out there. So you want to talk about race is another book. So we got to have that content constantly right. coming in, right. reading about AI and machine learning, blockchain, staying up to speed on those things as well. And John Maxwell, so I just put on Kindle, I had it in a physical book, but the book was like this thick. Well, it was pretty, let's say four inches thick, since you can't see what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, pretty thick book about the irrefutable laws of leadership. Because in some cases, to be honest, what I found when I'm looking at DEI and now this, all of the opportunities are coming in this space for me, some of it is just the person should have never been a manager in the first place. They are just uniformly across the board to everybody, a terrible manager. So now I had to go back to the basics to look at leadership and the things that maybe they could have been trained or taught on uh, before they assume the role. I don't know what kinds of skill sets people are trained on, but in some cases, when I hear the stories, I'm just like, okay, they were just terrible. They should have never been a manager in the first place, not because it was gender orientation or race, just because you just can't have people that report to you and you never communicate with them, any, any of them. So stuff like that. And then I like mysteries, uh, love John Grisham, Stephen King, horror movies. Oh my gosh. I could, I like to be afraid. Um, I'm that person that my husband stopped going to movies with me to see scary movies because I would say, run, get up, don't go in the room. And he'd say, are you kidding me? We are in the movie theater. So now 
I just jump up and down in my seat because we're at home watching the movies. Yeah. And I like that. And it's science fiction. So I'll read a good science fiction book too. So that's always really good. Awesome. So when you said that you like to be afraid, that immediately triggered, you know, (laughs) in my head, I'm going to, wow, like, how am I not, uh, like, I absolutely, I do not like uh, being afraid. I don't go to horror movies. You don't like horror movies? My son. My younger son will not watch a horror movie. And I think he thinks Jason is going to be in the closet. I don't know. But I'm like, it's not real. Yeah, I never grew out of that phase. I never grew out of it. But now I am learning. I was saying, though, that, um, you know, I'm learning the whole get comfortable being uncomfortable. Being afraid is uncomfortable for me, right? And so now to see you as a leader, like in that space, and you're like, oh, I just love horror movies. Like, I'm, I'm okay with afraid all the time. I'm like, oh, maybe I should go watch a horror movie this week. Yes, no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> when COVID is over, we're gonna, I'm gonna go with you. So okay. you COVID is over and we're on vaccine three. Yes. Get on vaccine three. Uh, and once we we get through that, I think I just got an alert from the movies though. So our movie theaters open? Yeah, I haven't. I, I was gonna watch a movie indoor, indoors. <laughs> Me too. Or, or 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 this is probably before your time. The drive-in movies. Yes. Now that is coming back. I've, I've heard about people going to the drive-in theater, so maybe we got to try that too. Yes. I just want us as a community to rally together and use this as an opportunity to, to talk about how amazing we are. The ingenuity of the Black and African American community is just absolutely amazing, amazing. And whenever I go back into Baltimore and I see the, the guys out on the corners you know, selling water or doing squeezies. And I'm thinking, man, if they channeled that energy in a different way or the graphic design work that they are putting on sides of buildings, okay, I get it. It could be graffiti and vandalism. But in some cases, it's just beautiful talent and works of art. And I'm just like, what can we do to help people find the best version of their own careers and I have learned early, early, early that maybe college isn't for everyone as much as we would like it to be. But if you can find gainful employment and make a contribution that makes you feel like getting up every day, and I say this even for my son, so you know I'm serious about it. It's not two rules, the rule for you and the rule for my kids. There are so many amazing things that we should be encouraging our family members and in our communities to do. I just want us all to have a skill, a skill that is going to help us take care of ourselves and promote entrepreneurship. I'd love to see us as business owners and out there generating generational wealth so we can pass it down and not feel like we're starting over every single time. And I was just telling my son, it was like, I had to fill out my own college applications, not because my parents didn't love me or didn't care. They just could not. My, my parents graduated from high school. Thank you, God, for that. My dad was in, you know, he went to Vietnam. He was drafted. My mom was a teacher's assistant. So they did well before she became a stay-at-home mom. But they couldn't help me. And, and they couldn't read any essays. 
And they didn't do the FAFSA or whatever the financial aid form was then. They didn't do any of that. And, and so as I talked to my son about his classes, and I was just like, this is such a different relationship because I could tell my son, listen, do not take a class before nine o'clock in the morning. And he would say, well, why? I get up at six o'clock now. I said, because when you're in college, something flips in your brain. You, can, you will not be able suddenly to wake up that early for class. Trust me. And he did. He did listen to me. And his dad chimed in and was like, no, don't do it. We, we tried those eight o'clock classes. And we now, of course, in the Nava family, there are some people who probably did do those eight o'clock classes. But for me, it was a struggle to get to the eight o'clock class. I was like, no, I know better now. Those are the tips that my mom and dad could not have told me. They didn't know to tell me. And, and so I'm hoping that now he's standing, I'm standing on my parents' shoulders. My kids are standing on my husband and I's shoulders. And then we will help push and keep moving and start talking about entrepreneurship, businesses, business capital, investments, and talking about having financial security in a way that typically, in some instances, we just have not talked about. And so that you were on a call with the Urban League, I'd say, you go, keep it going, pass it on, you know, bring that knowledge back. And, and I love how committed you are, how dedicated you are. I spoke with you, you know, a couple of years ago at Beta Alpha Psi and look at you now. And you are still giving back and you are out here finding people to interview, to bring this knowledge to the NABA family and the communities. And I'm so proud of you. So I can't wait to see what you are going to do next. And, and I would say that the sky is the limit, but there are footprints on the moon. And I fully expect that you will keep pushing. If you feel comfortable in your role, then I need you to be working on something else. I need you to have an edge of adrenaline rush. I need you to think of something so big that you want to do that everybody around you tells you you are crazy. And then I want you to keep on trying and keep on doing it and know that I am an ally. I am a stakeholder, a supporter, and I will do everything in my power to help you on your journey. I, I like, thank you so much. I appreciate like, there's like, you know, it's just when the words just escape you, that's it. That's it. I just, I appreciate you. Thank you for making time on a Friday evening to spend time talking with me, talking with all the listeners on this podcast um, and sharing, like you said, three years ago. Uh, so I did. Oh, <laughs> uh, you were little then. That's so funny. It's like when you get big. <laughs> so now we have to put both of our uh, interviews side by side. Oh, yes, to do the growth, yes. To do the, the podcast one and to do the Facebook Live one. It'll be interesting, um, but yeah. you're growing up. <laughs> so, I mean, to just know that I sat with you at that time and I was so nervous and you were going through so much and, and I just, you know, wow, just thank you. Uh, you wear it well. You have. And, a, and an amazing uh, leader to look up to, some a mentor. And, you know, you asked us <laughs> in that conference, like, oh, I just want, I want to be a, a, I want to get mentors from the audience. That's what you asked. You said, everywhere I go, I am looking That's for right. mentors because I would like to learn from you all. And I've taken that with me in all of the, 
all of the spaces that I show up in and I just show up to, you know, absorb. And I just, I just thank you so much. Every time that you speak, I just feel like I'm learning. Um, so uh, my last question, because it wouldn't be NABA if we didn't talk about the motto. Uh, so yeah. can you leave us with um, what does lifting as we climb mean to you? It means lifting as I climb means every day thinking about servant leadership. It's not about me. The gifts and talents that I have been given are for me to go out and bring it forward to others. It's to be a testimony of God's grace and what he is capable of and to demonstrate that to others in living proof. And understanding that truly to whom much is given, much is required. And so every day I think about how I can pay it forward and how I can help someone else because you never know when you could be the difference in someone's life and their career journey and choices that they have to make because they may not have it in their family, but it's amazing and awesome to know that they have it in a NABA family and that they can just come and find someone that can help them and encourage them. And that is my assignment that I have taken on and I will continue to do as long as I have breath in my body. I am compelled, unwavering, unrelenting to help someone else in their journey to be the difference in their lives. I want to be the difference and I strive and I'm intentional about doing that every day. 